I gotta say, uh, the last church I preached at, am I on? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, the last church I preached at, the average age was uh, probably 70. And they had a big pulpit I could hide behind, so, yeah. Um, I want to introduce my sermon in Psalm 73 uh, by talking about a small debate among pastors. Uh, Some pastors say uh, it's not okay for a pastor to get up in front of their congregation and confess their sins and their doubts. And they have good reason. Um, uh, A pastor is supposed to be a shepherd, somebody who watches over their flock, uh, and when uh, somebody in the flock is hurting, they want somebody strong to come to. Uh, and I understand the argument from this side. And on the other side, you've got, well, let's be real. Let's be authentic in front of our sheep, right? If we have doubts, if we have sins, we should confess them, right? And so there's like this divide among pastors. Some say we should confess. Others say we shouldn't confess. Um, but the truth is, I'm a guest speaker, so I don't fall into that category. I can just tell it like it is. Um, we find in Psalm 73, which is where I'm going to be camping today, uh, Asaph, the recorder, does just that. He tells it like it is. And I, I would like to pray before, we, before I get going into the Bible, so if you guys want to bow and pray with me. God, I do thank you for this church. Um, it has been a big blessing even just the two, the two weeks I've been here. I pray you bless it. I pray you calm the nerves that I have right now. And uh, yeah, I do pray you speak. I do pray you move. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of prayer requests on that bulletin that I'm going to be speaking to today. Yeah, I just pray you, you would talk to those guys through what I'm going to be presenting. In your name I pray. Amen. And so, yeah, that's Buddha apparently, but. We're, we're not worshiping Buddha, I need to clarify. So, they, they will fail us. Okay. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles or your iPads, I'm used to 70-year-olds, remember. Uh, I'm going to start reading. In Psalm 73, it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. I, I would like to say some things about that, even just off the start. One commentator, a guy from the 19th century, who I hold highly in my heart, he said, it this, he said it's like this. He said, it's like Asaph is putting his foot down. He's saying, I know this is true. I know God is good. I know He's good. But, then he's going to go on and tell us what his heart really is like at this present moment. And he says he almost slipped. In verse 3, he goes on to say the reason why he slipped. He says, uh, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in my mind, it's like he's making an idol. There it is. Uh, an idol out of money. An idol out of prosperity. Um, and he's looking at these people who are wicked. That's what the Bible says. And he says, I would like to be like them, or I would like to have what they have. In verse 4, continuing, he describes the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. 
Their eye bulges from fatness, which is apparently a compliment. I, so what are you saying? The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens. Man, that's a phrase that I'm going to be dealing with. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And then this is what the wicked say. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Uh, one theologian that I'm pretty fond of said, uh, he, he, he was asked a question by an atheist, and the atheist asked him, uh, so what do you think the strongest argument atheism has against Christianity? Uh, and to my surprise, he didn't answer with like a theological conundrum that we can't solve. He said it's an emotional problem. Christians struggle with, why do the wicked prosper? Why do pure people suffer? Why does a good God allow suffering? And I, I still think this is true. I mean, I can, I can handle a lot of intellectual issues. It's really not that troubling to me. But when I look out into the world and I see people prosper who are just jerks, let's just say what they are. They're jerks. They're wicked is what the Bible says. And not only that, but they speak against the heavens, which is against God. I think that is the, the strongest argument we face as Christians the problem of evil. And not only, get this, not only do the wicked prosper, but the pure suffer. Read it, keep going in 13. Surely in vain, you can see Asaph's heart here, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, that is to say, if I would have put words to my feelings, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And get this, here's the emotional side, like the theologian says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. How many of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about? How many of you know wicked people who seem to prosper? Yeah. Okay, I, I have three stories that I can, yeah, I can so relate to Asaph. Oh my goodness. And the truth is, I, I study my Bible, I read my Bible just about every day, I pray every day, every other day with my wife, I go to Bible studies, I study at a Christian college to be a pastor, I'm learning Greek, and the truth is, I doubt. Sometimes I doubt. A man named Christopher Hitchens recently passed away, there he is has been the cause of a lot of my doubts. Um, when I first became a Christian, uh, I, I was very zealous. I wanted to know all the arguments. I wanted to present my case to my atheist friends. And I did. And as soon as I did, I ran into opposition. They would say, well, what about this? And what about this? And I was like, I don't know. I better find out. So I, I would uh, open up my laptop and put it at the foot of my bed every night before I would go to bed, before I'd fall asleep, that is. Uh, and I would watch debates. I would watch debates between between Christians, uh, Christians and Muslims, Christians and 
atheist, Catholic and Protestant, Jewish and Islam. Atheist and Islam, that's a weird one. And I, I would just try to get the feel for where people are coming from, what are their perspectives. So when I would go talk to my friends, which I did, I would have an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. Anyway, uh, you know, I didn't struggle with the atheist perspective for almost all of it. I mean, I can handle Dawkins. I mean, he's just talking evolution. He's talking evolutionary naturalism. I get that. I can understand uh, intellectual problems. But with Hitchens, he does it. Well, he did it. He recently passed away. Um, he does it way differently. He folds his hands like this. You can tell when he's really in a good mood because he'll fold his hands. And he'll start mocking God. And he does it like this. He'll say something like, the kids are gone, right? Yeah. He'll say something like, why does, the God, why does God care so much about what I do with my sexual organ? And he's referring to a circumcision. Why would God care so much about that? Or uh, how can heaven sit back and watch? Like he would use that phrase, how can heaven, which is exactly what Asaph says, they mock the heavens. It's like crazy. But he says, how can heaven sit back and watch this kind of suffering? And he would just mock God. And in my head I'm thinking, that's not an intellectual issue. Why does he? And produced a lot of doubt early in my Christianity. We're going to find... Well, I don't want to say God killed him. Because I can't speak for God. But I've seen God kill people for less in Scripture. I'll say that much. The second story has to do with an idol that I set up. Similar to Asaph in, Psalm, or in verse 3. Earlier this year, my wife and I were going through pretty rough financial situation. This is my wife, just so you know. That's why I keep looking at her. I'm not... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, we were going through just the worst financial situation I think I've ever been in. Uh, each month, I would see our emergency fund go closer and closer to zero. Because um, Alyssa was struggling to find a job. Uh, we had just come back from a mission trip. Uh, I rode my bike across America as a fundraiser over the summer from coast to coast, or coast to coast. Um, and we came back and we had hardly any money. And so it was a really rough situation for us financially. Um, couldn't find a job, just couldn't find a job. Day after day it was getting worse, mo worse month, month after month. No sign of a job. Uh, she got a job once and then it was gone in two weeks. They like let her go. It's just so rough. And at school, there was a guy, get this, a guy um, on the baseball team. No offense to baseball players. Um, he offered some of my friends some drugs. And uh, he's got a big baseball scholarship, drives a big truck. I ride a bicycle because I can't afford a second car at the time. I still ride my bike because I like it, though. Uh, and I was just faced with this problem. We don't have any money. I, I'm doing all these things for God, and there's no, no sign of it relenting. I was riding my bike home one day. Oh, yeah, the bike I was riding got stolen, icing on the cake there, I guess. We had to buy another one, and the bike I was riding broke one day on our way home. And it, it was at the very bottom of our emergency fund. We, if we had to spend more than 50 bucks on the, the repair, I don't think we could have paid rent that month. 
It was just bad. And I had just told God, I'm sick of this. Why why don't you do something? And I doubted. Pastor, training to be a pastor, and I'm doubting. It's not supposed to happen, right? Eventually, she got a job, and God is true to his word in Philippians 4.19. He says he takes care of our needs. He did. And uh, I do praise him for that every day. Um, and then my last story. Uh, you know when you're in high school and you think you love someone? Right? Because you don't really know what love is when you're in high school. You think you're in love with somebody, but you really don't. You really set people up as idols. So there's my Buddha. Um, I did this in high school with a girl. And of course, like nine out of ten relationships in high school, they fail. And there I was, broken. And um, what do you do? You're broken, fresh out of high school. Um, I had just graduated. And I, I ran to my ninth grade English teacher, who was a Christian. She was kind of a mentor watching over me at the time. Um, I told her, what do I do? I, I don't have anything left. You know, I set her up as my my idol. She was my thing that I worshipped at the time. And she said, Travis, your perspective is totally messed up right now. <laughs> That's the first thing she said. But the second thing she said stuck with me really well, and I want to share it with you. She said this, Travis, you need to pour yourself into your ministry. Pour yourself into your ministry. So I did. I signed up for a mission trip, six-month mission trip. Went and worked with Muslims in Egypt. Came back, signed up for Gordon College, training to be a pastor, and pouring myself into my ministry still today. The reason I bring that up is because in verse 17, well, verse 16, he says, When I pondered to understand this, the problem of evil, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17, here's the big change. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Now you have to know some things about Asaph to really understand this verse. Uh, part of his ministry was to write psalms. In fact, this 73 is the first of, I think a dozen or so, or Baker's dozen, psalms that he's written in have been put into Scripture. And at one point in the Old Testament, he's mentioned right alongside David in the same verse uh, as an author of songs that are going to be sung in the temple. Even the children of Asaph, the Asaphites, were in charge of temple worship. They would sing in the temple, and his children were in charge of that. And so when he says, until I, went into the until I came into the sanctuary of God, what he's really saying is, until I went in to do my ministry, until I went into worship, to do what I was called to do, then I understood, then I perceived their end. And so, here's, here's my little thing on doubt. Number one, if you're doubting, don't ignore it. Uh, Asaph doesn't, Job doesn't. Uh, it's not something that should be doubted. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it happens. Uh, don't ignore it. And number two, pray. I don't think God is in heaven uh, shaking in his boots. Oh no, Timmy doesn't believe in me anymore. I don't think he is. I think he can handle your doubts. I know he can handle your doubts. And number three, seek him. The Bible uses language like seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Uh, ask and you will receive. Uh, 
uh, draw near to me, I will draw near to you, this kind of language. Uh, and just because you wear uh, black rim glasses and go to rock concerts, that doesn't mean you're seeking God. I thought it was funny. Uh, and number four, pour yourself into your ministry. If any of you come to a place where you doubt God's existence, I encourage you, number one, to worship, because that goes hand in hand with what Asaph did. But really, pour yourself into your ministry. Figure out what God has called you to do and do it. And I bet he'll meet you there and give you the correct perspective on things. So there's my tangent on doubt. Um, I want to talk about C.S. Lewis for a second. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a small essay called First and Second Things. Uh, almost nobody I've ever met has read this. I only know it because my freshman history teacher mentioned it. You guys, can you put the quote up? I know I'm not supposed to tell you, but can you? Yeah, okay. This is C.S. Lewis talking. Uh, the, the essay is called First and Second Things, and he lays out uh, how there, there are second things in our life, and then there are first things in our life. Uh, second things would be like, uh, the example he gives is a girl who owns a dog. How many of you guys own dogs? Nice. How many of you own cats? Oh, that's, that's too bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> My wife loves cats, but I'm not a cat person. So, um, In any case, he gives the example of a person who's walking a dog and owns a dog and says, yeah, it's okay to have a dog. There's nothing wrong with owning a dog. But if you make your dog your number one priority, your number one focus, all your hope, all your joy comes from your dog, you are then going to... What? <laughs> Everyone's pointing to chat. <laughs> Do you like your dog or something? Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't plan that. But, but the, the truth is, if you pour everything you have into what C.S. Lewis would call a second thing, you lose the joy of that second thing. The pleasure that you would derive from it, you cannot have because you've made it into an idol or a first thing. And so he says... You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first, from which it would follow what things are first. Some people in Psalm 73 have put second things first. And I want to read about them in verse 18. It says, Asaph says of them to God, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And he talks about himself. Uh, he says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, and I was senseless and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. I love how God is faithful. I know you were mentioning how relentless He is in His pursuit of us. It comes, true in Psalms, or it comes through in Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward you will receive me in glory. So some commentators argue about what glory means. Uh, I'm going to make a case that it means heaven uh, based on the next verse. Um, and just... I want to share something personal. Yesterday, it's one of the hardest days I've ever had as a Christian. I was defending a position on uh, 
church discipline, uh, and I got a lot of flack from it. Uh, one person came up to me and or wrote to me. It was online. One person wrote to me and said, uh, "Get this. They 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 whatever whatever it's called. They pre- prepared their sentence by saying this. Travis, I don't even know you. That's how they started it. Travis, I don't even know you, but it's people like you who make other people hate Christianity." And I was like. You don't even know me. You don't even need to know the context of what I was saying, but that's like, wow. So I was having just a rough day. And uh, yeah, this verse came up last night when I was praying. I wanted to share it with you. Because it has to do with uh, verse 24 where he talks about this, God's going to receive the righteous in glory. the, The end of the wicked truly is destruction but the end of the righteous is glory. And Paul, in Romans 8, talks about this. Uh, I'll just read it to you. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory. See the phrase there? The glory that is to be revealed to us. The junk we're going through, the, the fact that we can't get enough money to pay for rent, the fact that my bicycle got stolen, the fact that my bike broke, the fact that people are judging me who don't even know me. You know, it's hard. But that's not our end. And that's a great truth we can hang on to. So coming back to Psalm 73, um, and coming back to C.S. Lewis, if we can put that up again, I know I'm not supposed to tell you sorry. He says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first, from which it would follow what things are first. And I'm going to make a case that Asaph answers the question for us in verse 25. Um, and before I read it, I just want to say, these four verses, 25 through 28, uh, I read these, three, these four verses every time I open my Bible. These are the verses I try to live my life by. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion or my inheritance forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, The nearness of God is my good. I love that verse. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Not a second thing. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And so, that's what a first thing is. And I'll even make this case. Once you make God a first thing, just like C.S. Lewis says, I think he's right, Everything else seems to give you just that much more pleasure. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation, no shifting shadow. And I, I, I tie into this Psalm 16. Um, Psalm 16:11. he says, You will make known to me the path of life. And then this, this is the phrase that really gets me. This is what makes me think God is a first thing. And he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. 
So let me ask you, you, you have your dog, right? Do you get fullness of joy from your dog? No. No. It's a second thing, right? And it, you only understand that you get joy from the dog when you have God as first place. Yeah. That's what it's about. And so, the truth is we settle, though. Can we put up the last quote? Yeah. C.S. Lewis says this in uh, his sermon, The Weight of Glory, much more popular. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, all these second things, when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. And so my claim to you is, uh, idols will fail you. Idols, second things, they can go down the list, money, girls, guys, I guess. <laughs> I don't think of it in that terms. Ambition, prestige, they're all going to fail you. At the end of the day, the only thing that can bring you fullness of joy is the Lord. The Lord himself, the person of God. So, uh, I want to close with uh, a small benediction. Just say, when you doubt, may you pray. When you doubt, may you seek. And when you doubt, may you pour yourself into your ministry. And may you find, above all else, that there's only one first thing. Thanks for your time.